Ladies and gentlemen, the following podcast contains coarse language, strong thematic themes, talk of history and context, terrible imitations of Hollywood figures, and an unbashed love of Hollywood's golden age. It also contains the ramblings of an unstable dork who has too much time on his hands. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on with the program. Okay, Zach, you're on the air. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Orson Welles, speaking to you on behalf of the Yesteryear Ballet Boo review. But unlike last year, where most of the episodes had something to do with me, this year, nothing has anything to do with me. I just need the money. Nevertheless, we shall press on in a professional manner. And I assure you, ladies and gentlemen, that no Paul Masson wine has passed these lips in preparation for these introductions. This is pure wells. We begin the first of these four discussions filled with ghoulish gab, with a trip outside the village of Cortempierre, France, where a young man has checked into a room for some rest, where all he will find is an unwaking nightmare filled with unspeakable terrors. Unspeakable terrors that can only come to you courtesy of the Ballet Boo! <laughs> Yesteryear, Ballyhoo, review. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Yesteryear Ballyboo review. Many, many terrifying sights await inside this creepy picture palace of the past, and we have plenty of ghastly ways to talk about the things inside. So hurry and get your seats. Tonight, the Ballyhoo is about to go all the way to Denmark, or wait, Germany. Oh, wait, France. Oh, wait, maybe we're back in America. I don't know. The crazy thing about today's little film is that it was meant to speak to all languages, and yet it would barely be able to speak one by the time we got our hands on it. It is made by one of the most influential silent filmmakers of his time, and yet this is a genre he is not known for. Despite that little crutch, he has yet... He managed to produce one of the greatest terrifying vampire thrillers of all time. The man is Carl Theodore Dreyer, and the film is Vampire from 1932. So see the show, and stay behind for a discussion to delight the earbuds. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your silent film, Benchy Orson Welles, here to give you a description of the film, even though it does have sound, I assure you, none of this dialogue really means anything to the story. Now we have a young man named Alan Gray, and he's checking into a room, and suddenly he's got somebody coming in and giving him a book saying, Oh, it's important, make sure you read this if I die. And now we have shots of his daughter being infested by a vampire, and then his other daughter looking very, very distraught, and we have shots of a creepy old woman and her assistant, who may or may not be a very talented musician ghost shadow. We have no idea yet. All of this is a kind of a dream, the kind that would make David Lynch very, very happy. Now the teaser's over. 
let us return to the podcast where we will learn more about Carl Theodore Dreyer's Vampire. Now that you've seen the show, we will get to the talk of the day. Yes, in 1932, Carl Theodore Dreyer released Vampire to a less than enthusiastic and at times outraged public. Not so much because the film managed to morally outrage them, but they just thought it was crap. Yet the film has gone on through the years as a little bit of a cult classic and has gained the influence enough to find itself to be one of the premier titles in the Criterion Collection. But the film is more than just a boutique label item for people to buy during Barnes & Noble sales. It does have atmospheric lessons to teach us about filmmaking and has found its way to kind of creep itself into the world of cinema that we see today. But how does it do that? Well, we cannot do this alone. Every year at the Ballyboo, we bring on our most terrifying guests, and this one might be the most horrifying. He is an he is a historian. He is a podcaster. He is a filmmaker. But more importantly, he has now become an accidental a- expert on vampires. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show, horrifying Henry Jarvis. Boo! Boo! No! Hi! Oh, no. God, you're scaring me. Welcome to the program. Despite the fact that you scared me, it is delightful to have you back, Henry. It's delightful to be back. Yes. Now, now you are actually in person this I time. I am in person this time. That is wonderful because yeah. you are no longer a New York boy. Yep, no longer. Uh, that city can burn to the goddamn ground if, <laughs> by, for all I care. What What did it? Was it the vampire from Brooklyn? Huh? Huh? No. <laughs> Damn it. It was the werewolf from the Bronx. <laughs> Now, that was a movie that should have been made. <laughs> I'm sure it was. I'm sure you can find it on Netflix right now. The Frankenstein monster from Queens. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Sleepy Hollow Horrors. Oh, Sleepy Hollow Ghost. There yeah, you go. There you go. Oh, God. New York Monster Avengers. Uh, oh, that'd be great. That'd be great. See, yeah. This is the issue with the uh, Dark Universe. They keep trying to do all these reboots and all that stuff, but you got to connect it by having them all share an apartment in Manhattan. Uh, and so that's how you do the dark universe. Make it friends. And have and so. have one of them very obsessed with Cheerios and the other one. Well, of course. The other one is worried about shrinkage and one of yeah. them eats Kenny Rogers chickens in the bathroom. Maybe I just want to watch Seinfeld again. Yeah, that's fine. That'd be great. Yeah. Is Dracula the, the, the Seinfeld of the group? No, Dracula's obviously the George of the group. <laughs> <laughs> I was in the pool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Frankenstein's obviously Kramer. Um, the bride of Frankenstein Frank- is Elaine. Is Elaine, yeah. Or no, yeah. Could, that could be the mummy. A mummy could be, could be mummy, a boy or a girl. Mummy, yeah, yeah. mummy and so that's true so then that means and jerry's jerry jerry's. <laughs> the most terrifying new york creature of all jerry seinfeld how, you ever knows how werewolves shed themselves in the bed what's the deal with that yeah it's terrifying or as oh no 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 hold on a theremin Ooh. <laughs> i don't know if that works i don't know how theremin. you could possibly impersonate a theremin oh. doing the seinfeld <laughs> But, um, Electric keyboard doesn't translate well to zither. No. <laughs> um, or theremin. Now, welcome back. No, now, uh, you uh, brought us into the world of international cinema. Yeah. So, first of all, thanks a lot, jerk. You're and welcome. Uh, no, it's actually funny because um, at the end of the episode, we'll talk about why that's kind of important. Yeah. Um, but uh, you also, last year, we did Nosferatu yeah. from Germany. Yeah. Technically, this is a German film. Technically, it's also a Denmark film. Technically, this is also a French film. I guess it's a globalist film. It's a globalist so. film. Oh, so then we have to take it out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, God, this film's agenda is all kinds of crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, uh, you you did Vampires from Afar yeah. last year. I thought it would be interesting to get you back for this one because this is kind of 
not so much different, but it is kind of a 180 in a visual aesthetic a sense. Yeah. Had you seen this film before? Yeah. So my history with Vampire, uh, this was back when I was in high school. Uh, before I was collecting like physical media or anything like that, I was a big iTunes guy. Uh, and so I had bought a few uh, Criterions on iTunes. That's mm-hmm. how I got into them. And Vampire was one of the ones I bought. Uh, they used to have almost like a, uh, similar to like the Barnes & Noble sale, like once a month or one month a year, iTunes would sell the Criterions for like nine bucks. Damn, that world doesn't exist anymore. No. Uh, but Vampire was one of the ones I bought then. So I watched it then and I liked it. And I had not watched it since then. And so uh, <laughs> and so I, I have like fond memories of this movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I had basically not remembered a single aspect and also i realized as i was watching it uh that i confused this and nosferatu a lot mm-hmm. uh right but i will say uh revisiting it recently uh the biggest surprise was that it wasn't a silent film uh, i went into mm-hmm. it this time thinking it was a silent film and it was i was very shocked when the first word was spoken yeah uh but yeah so i i, I really liked it back in high school i like it even more now uh after re-watching it for the show uh i was able to see I don't know if it's not more than last time, but it was, uh, the actual plot of the movie is a lot more interesting than I remember it being. I'm, I'm actually glad that you, uh, had a similar experience. Uh, not so much that I saw this in high school per se, yeah. far from it. I actually saw this film for the first time about two, three years ago. Uh-huh. Um, Criterion was doing its annual sale and I'm much more physical media bound these days. I did yeah. do iTunes, but not for, um, uh, Criterion. I would yeah. do it for a lot more mainstream fare or 70s and 80s fare yeah, yeah, if I yeah. could get my hands on it. Vampire, though, I got because there was a there was a time when I was really getting back into horror around the time that we met, actually. Yeah. And this and Hexen were on a list of things oh, yeah. like, okay, eventually when I have the money, I want to get these and give them yeah. a blind buy. Um, and Vampire was the first one I picked up. And I remember just sitting down with it going like, all right, tonight's the night you're going to watch Vampire. And I was so fucking impressed with oh, what yeah. I was seeing on screen. Now, I had watched Passion of Joan of Arc before, mm-hmm. but I hadn't watched any other Dreyer work since. Yeah. And same with Vampire. I haven't gone back to Dreyer. And I think part of it's because Vampire and Passion of Joan of Arc were things that I appreciated in their moment, but their mood was not something that I was wanting to immerse myself in on a yeah. daily basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a thinking piece, just as Passion of Joan of Arc is. Yeah. And it's... I was impressed by how much they got away with without trending towards strictly gothic territory. Yeah. Yeah, this yeah. has gothic elements, but I would not describe this film as a gothic that, horror That's movie. definitely something that I noticed this time around is watching Realize. It feel like there's definitely like that gothic vibe, in def- gothic influence, but it really mixes itself with like German Expressionism. Uh, and it blurs the two like very mm-hmm. softly in a way that I think is very interesting. Well, and there's kind of like a visual reason for that in yeah. the history yeah, yeah, of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, let's talk a little bit about Dreyer uh, for for a minute because Dreyer's Dreyer coming to this film is coming off of the thing he is most known for. Yeah. I want to do Passion of Joan of Arc and Carl Theodore Dreyer's bio that at that time yeah for now though let's talk about dryer where he is now dryer is coming off of the dismal box office returns for passion of joan of arc a film by the way that the french said disrespected joan of arc to which i'm like technically you did that first yeah (laughs) as did the english as did everybody as did all men i mean the french (laughs) the french are nothing if not calling the kettle black so (laughs) 
I'm pretty sure I'm legally not allowed to enter France anymore based off everything I've said on this show. <laughs> so, we have, uh, what you say, a uh, Henry Chavez embargo? <laughs> yeah, they stop me at the border every time. We did not like his uh, assessment of uh, playtime. <laughs> so, how you go? Chakra <laughs> Blue. <laughs> Sacri Blue. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like my name with blue at the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, didn't realize that until today. <laughs> Shit. Um, now, but Dreyer, uh, Dreyer had a, another production company attached to uh, Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, not an unknown one. And when he, in dealing with them, he had another film on the contract. But when they saw the box office returns, they're like, nope. And so he basically said like, fuck it. I'm going to take the independent route. I'm going to I'm going to make my own way. I'm going to sell my organs and I'm going to make a movie with a bus and a turtle and a guitar. Oh wait, that's El Mariachi. Sorry, my uh, bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. I forgot. I get Vampire and El Mariachi mixed They're up all the time. They're very similar vibes. Usually so. cuz I remember that scene where where, where uh, the the vampire uh plays a guitar and shoots people with it. <laughs> yeah, the Climax of Vampire, and uh, and of course uh, the 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 bus rams into the flour mill, and that's how the villain yeah, dies. Yeah, again, the central point of Vampire. <laughs> yeah, just like how Murnau Murnau films were really about a bunch of gangsters stuck in a room. Together. Yeah, exactly. And then we have to figure out which one is the vampire, and yeah. and at the same time somebody's playing Steeler's Wheeler. It's a yeah. really insane thing. Yeah, no, he wants to go down the independent route, which means that he's got to find outside financing. Um, and you'd be damn lucky if you're going to find outside financing. But thankfully, this was a more enlightened time. And frankly, it's in a more enlightened part of the world somewhat. Keep in mind that we are dealing with Europe as it's about to be embroiled by a guy named uh, Adolf Hitler. 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 Yeah. yeah. So it's just it, we're creeping into that territory around this yeah. time. Um, but thankfully, at the time of wanting to make this new film, he was originally intending this to be a silent film, but the problem was uh, Al Jolson fucked up his plans um, because the emergence of the jazz singer um, and sound film at large had completely changed the film going landscape. It also meant that Europe went, oh, fuck, as did every studio in America after the jazz singer came out, because at that point, now everybody's having to convert and Europe was slower to convert than America because they had to. I don't know if it's a similar similar to E.G. Subaraya having to look at Kong, King Kong and being like, how did they do this witchcraft? <laughs> like, I, I, I would imagine the technology was ported over more bit by bit eventually. In fact, we do know this because. England had transferred rather quickly into this. In fact, around two years after The Jazz Singer, they were able to get one of their first sound films off the ground with blackmail directed by a little guy called uh, Alfred Hitchcock. A cock. Cock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, have a, I have a dirty thing at the end of my name. <laughs> Alfred. <laughs> Classic me. Now, um, but so Dreyer actually, in prepping for his eventual turn to sound, went to England to study how sound films were being made around the time that he did that. He didn't even fully intend that his was going to be a sound film, but he did run into um, a gentleman by the name of Christian Joel, uh, who was a Danish writer who was based in London. Now, Noel would end up becoming the screenwriter with uh, Dreyer. The origin of why he's going to do a vampire movie has two different pieces of influence. Now the thought is since this is made in 1932, it must be based off of the success of Dracula. Not the case. Um, there are two things. One is he said, 
and I keep in mind I can take this with a grain of salt because it seems like a more thoughtful artist than this. He said he had the he had the impetus to create a supernatural story while pouring through over 30 different mystery stories. He reached the conclusion we can jolly make this stuff too. So, uh the other part of it was he wanted to find a commercial hit. I think that his artistic streak in Passion of Joan of Arc not reflecting well with audiences in a country in in an area of the world where art film is praised mm-hmm. probably stabbed him a little bit. He wanted to make a commercial success. He might have wanted to try to flex those muscles. I think it's a combination of both things. Like yeah. like one of the video essayists um for the Criterion doesn't seem fully convinced, but I'm like I think there's a difference between wanting to make schlock and yeah. wanting to try a genre but then bringing something new to it. In fact, he said his goal was to bring something to the cinema that it had never seen before. Well, in a very, like, almost like an Edgar Wright way, where it's mm-hmm. like you're taking this genre piece, but bringing, making it worth, like, your time. Beyond, like, you can make something commercial while also making it worthwhile. It's the difference, I think, between selfishly making a... And this is not to denigrate the Friday the 13th franchise. I yeah. love it, and Sean Cunningham does bring artistry to it in yeah, his yeah. own fashion. But it is kind of the motivation... It's the difference between the motivation of a Sean Cunningham to go, let's just rip off Halloween versus John Carpenter going like, I'll take the $10,000, thank you, but I'm also going to do stuff with this yeah. that I want to do, and it's called Halloween. Yeah, yeah, I think that there is a difference, and I think that Dreyer hits more in the Carpenter mold, which is just like, sure, give me ten grand, and also let me, let me do stuff with this. Yeah. Now, he, the question would be then, well, how are they going to be, how, how are they going to, why are they going to tackle a vampire movie? Why that? Now, again, it's not 1931's Dracula that really yeah. does this. It does kind of reflect it, though, because Hamilton Dean's theatrical version of Dracula was hitting London very successfully in 1927. So this idea was actually stemming off of that success. He's looking more towards that. He's not looking immediately in 1930 at Dracula being made. He doesn't even may, he may not even have a predilection that it's successful enough to eventually knock his film a week off in premieres uh, down here in, in down here in Germany, so the there is a suspected notion that Nosferatu clawed its way to influence in this film a little bit, and as you talked about, that's not out of left field. Yeah, that could totally be the case. Um, needless to say, both would end up playing the same premiere palace. Um, the difference is technically, Vampire didn't have a lawsuit with it against a widow. Dreyer was smart. He yeah. was like, no, 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 no. Do not, uh, I'm not going to take it and just rip it off. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to, as it were, make sure that I am clear of copyright. <laughs> um, now, this is a combination of a couple pieces similar to Dracula uh, in certain respects or like other vampiric stories. Everybody has to go back to fucking Carmilla. <laughs> Carmilla, the lesbian vampire tale, which never really got a full, to my knowledge, a full adaptation, probably because it was the, the 20th century and not the 21st century. Yeah. Somebody needs to do a black and white version of Carmilla today and make it as explicit as possible. Well, yeah, of course. I, I think that that's what Francis Ford Coppola should do instead of Megalopolis. He's already proven he can make a vampire movie. Yeah. Spend your wine money on that. Thank exactly. you very much. Um, the other story, though, that this is influenced by comes from the same author, The Room in the Dragon Volant, and that contains the element of live burial, which I would argue is creepier than a vampire. Vampire bite my neck. Okay. Well, I, like when I uh, go home tonight, 
I'm not going to be attacked by a vampire. I'm an adult. I understand that. Uh, but if someone, like, crashes into my car, pulls me out of the car, and then buries me alive, that actually could happen. <laughs> and so it's a lot scary. If he shoots you with a fucking shotgun in the chest, he's Michael Madsen. Yeah. So you'll know like, how to identify the killer inside see, this, the castle. This is a real threat. Yeah, so. this is a real threat. Vampires, I mean... Unless you talk about the people in your life that suck the energy out of you, then I guess those are threats, but they're not the same type of... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to kill me. They're just going to kill me. So... <laughs> this is why this is why vocalization is important and it will be discussed on a eventual Ballyhoo with Keith yeah. Scott again. Yeah. Um, vocalization, intonation, the ideas. <laughs> um, now, uh, to secure funds, though, how are you going to do this? How are you going to pull this off? You have no fucking money. You have no fucking production company. But... This was at a time, as I said, where financial gurus, as it were, of their era, or what you would also call old money and aristocrats, um, are eager to kind of get into this game. And there is a push for art film in this area of the world. Enter Nicholas de Gunsberg, a minor aristocrat, later known for being the editor of Harper Bazaar, uh, home and co- home and country and Vogue. So uh, we've got ourselves you know, a magazine editor. A editing. minor uh, <laughs> aristocrat. Well, I think what it means is that he his influence in the old money world not uh-huh. so much. But then he was sort of like Charles Foster Kane. He's just like, but what if I take over the world of publishing? Yeah, you know. <laughs> what if I had this lead? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, but he uh, he had an interest point in this. Now, thankfully, um, a gentleman named Herman C. Weinberg. And Gretchen Weinberg, I'm assuming maybe a husband and wife team, who knows? Um, they had an interview with Baron Nicholas Dickensburg uh, in the spring 1964 issue of Film Culture. And uh, the Baron here, the Baron, <laughs> the Baron, the Baron, <laughs> the Red Baron. Oh, yes, I fear that Snoopy will come and get me one day. <laughs> I'm sorry, World War One Flying Ace is his actual name. <laughs> Listen, I gave this movie five stars, but uh, it would have gotten six if Snoopy made an appearance. <laughs> If the doctor was played by Snoopy the dog. No. <laughs> it should be the tree-eating kite. <laughs> or the kite-eating tree. And then, oh no, Woodstock is the doctor. And Snoopy comes in as the Red Baron and shoots the beams into the bill. Well, of course. <laughs> Makes a collapse on him after yeah. it's already suffocated him. That's how you make a truly perfect movie. Charles Schultz is spitting in his nice Minnesotan grave. <laughs> I think he would have approved. <laughs> My two favorite films are Citizen Kane. And Vampire. I think that the mill of white flour burying the doctor is similar to Charlie Brown not kicking the football. <laughs> we all have our allegories. <laughs> I also, too, wanted uh, the scene where where uh, Alan Gray had to pay five cents for psychology uh, during the middle of his uh, vampire attack. <laughs> There's just a lot of hidden symbolism to the Peanuts comics that we just don't see. That's, uh, that's a very true statement, despite me joking about yeah. it. <laughs> um, but here, let me, let's let Nicholas de Gunsberg talk a little bit about himself, because... This is his only film ever. Um, he says, I was born in France. My father was Russian. My mother, Polish-Brazilian. One night, the Count Etienne de Beaumont gave a fancy dress ball, the theme of which was opera. Valentine Hugo and I made a, made an entree dressed as... An entree, not an entree, not a supper. An entree dressed as Huguenots. 
Carl Dreyer was there. Like everyone else, I was dying to get into the movies. <laughs> yep. And though through a mutual friend, Jean Hugo, the painter, and his wife, Valentine, the stage designer, both of whom knew Dreyer, Jean Hugo, having worked with him on The Passion of Joan of Arc, I met Dreyer. The next day, he asked the Hugos if they thought I would act in his next, next film. And of course, I jumped at the opportunity. He wanted to do a film in three versions, French, English, and German, and I spoke all three languages. My film, my father had died, so I was free. <laughs> That's a weird thing. Like, my yeah, father, right. <laughs> yeah, my dad's gone, so I guess I'm free to I do whatever. Time, <laughs> so. Me, as a grown adult aristocrat. Yeah. <laughs> um, when I decided to be an actor that I had, that uh, oh, sorry, it was, he said, but there was such a family fuss over me acting when I decided to be an actor that I had to use a pseudonym. So we thought of Julian West as it had to be the same in all languages. And Weinberg uh, asked him, have you ever heard of Mr. Dreyer before meeting him? He went, yes, his reputation in Paris was very great. And I admired his film Joan of Arc very much. That sounds like an after the fact yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, to me going like, yes, he was very admired in Paris. I'm like, um, press tells us otherwise yeah um i mean he probably was respected but not like he had just made a movie about one of their saints yeah so um uh dryer wanted to do a story dealing with the supernatural and together we read a great many books and found that sheridan lefanu's stories were the most suited for what he had in mind so he's kind of working with the gunsberg and christian joel but however the thing that um mr um gunsberg is not mentioning just yet is that um the actual trade was, I'll finance your movie, but I, Nicholas de Gunsberg, want to act in your movie. Mm-hmm. So we know that tale. Yeah. You know, somebody has a vanity project on their yeah. mind. Somebody like uh, like a, um, <clears throat> a faithful findings fella <laughs> might uh, want to. Working as a crew member in New York, I'm very familiar with uh, that uh, <laughs> idea. So. Very familiar with it? <laughs> yeah, I I cannot tell you how many shorts I've made that were produced by the lead actor because they wanted to look badass on screen. So. <laughs> were then any of them as good as Fateful Findings? <laughs> <laughs> Better? <laughs> <laughs> Better than The Room? <laughs> Apologies to people who seemingly have the resources to do what they want, and God bless them. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so, so that was the exchange. You give us the you give I give you the money. You give me an acting role. Um, and uh, now, in prepping this, Dreyer casted mainly non-actors, probably because they're cheap. Um, in fact, the only two professionals on screen are Maurice Schultz, who plays the Lord of the Manor, the dad, um, and Sybil Schmitz, who plays Leona. Um, and it's very evidenced as to who is an actor and who is not in this movie, and that's not a detriment to the movie. Are are oddly enough. I think that the non-actor approach works for this film better than you might think it would. Not all the time, but some of it. We can get into that when we talk about the film. Now, location scouting for the shoot was accomplished by Dreyer, his cinematographer, Rudolf Mate, and most prominently, Ilian Tiar, um, the assistant to uh, Dreyer. Now, there are many scenes that are primarily shot in Corte Tempierre, France, um, and the original script had called for a climax to occur in a swamp, which would consume the doctor. However, though, when they were scouting for a swamp, they came across an old mill uh, where they witnessed white shadows against the windows and doors. And Dreyer said, yeah, that looks good. Do that. 
Let's do that. That sounds wonderful. Upon seeing this, they changed the ending to reflect that revelation. Now they needed to find a mill that they could acquire. So Elian Tiar, an assistant for Dreyer, this is one of my favorite stories. I don't know if this is the one that they actually used. It was kind of unclear in the video essay um, on Criterion. If you're if you find that there's a more definite answer, please feel free to tell me to go fuck myself because uh, I really would like to know if this is the same one from this story. But apparently she was sent out to go find a factory in ruins in Paris, <laughs> no. um, which I love that description. Like, go find me something that's just completely fucking messed up. Yeah. While scouting the locations, she found one and she asked the owner for permission. Uh, when she was trying to ask the owner for permission to use the location, the owner thought she was trying to buy the place. So she said, uh, so he said, I will, I promise we're going to renovate this place at once. I know it's in drab and ruins. And she went, oh no, not at all. Your factory is admirable. The cracked roof that lets the light filter down and unmoving rusty machines, immobile pulleys, and their torn covers and gutted yawning ovens. As if a single gesture and a hand had annihilated everything here, sowing death. But mister, this factory is stunning. <laughs> Renovate it? Don't even think about it. And that's when I hope the owner went, get the fuck out of here. Yeah, yeah, probably around that point. <laughs> you creep. <laughs> That's the problem with being an artist. Your passion and your expression in intellectual manner will sound like you're about to hit somebody in the back of the head well, with a yeah. hammer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's expected if you're an artist. Yeah. <laughs> now, the, wow, we're expected to, to have that the whole time. I should have been doing that the whole time on this show. Yeah. Being like, you don't understand the artistry. Yeah. Um, now, the mill they did end up finding, though, was a plaster mill. That's why I want to know if the story is connected somehow. Yeah. Um, now, the decision, though, to shoot on location, not strictly unheard of with silent film. In fact, it's one of the benefits of doing silent film. However, they're going to do a sound film. Yeah. So you'd think studio, but no, 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 money cost too much so shooting on location provides an easement of that kind of payment and it does allow dryer as he kind of thinks to himself you know i get a little bit more of a natural naturalistic looking aesthetic with this and he's right so the the a fiscally sound decision pays off occasionally when we're talking about independent films it's not always you're compromising your vision like in fact I would argue that we've had to deal with, like, if you compromise your vision a little bit, it ends up making it better somehow. Like, you don't have to rely on the thing inside your head. Like, you start high and you work your way down. And I'm sure that's what he had to do, given the fact that he was going to have to film this independently anyway. Um, so now, um, the so then we get into production. We are filming between 1930 and 1931. Um, it seems like it starts more about, like, in the second third of the year. Um, the film is originally intended, as I said, to be a silent film. Um, so they use a lot of title cards in this film and at one point a book, which we'll get into because I have a thought about that. Um, uh, but uh, initially, though, um, you wonder, well, what are they going to do with sound? Well, they're kind of doing something that our old friends, the Italians, uh, would become very known for, which is post-syncing dialogue. Um, and there is very little dialogue in this movie, so yeah. it wasn't a long job to do it. I think that the ambition to do this in three languages is part of the issue, but I don't think it's the full reason. I think Dreyer, similar to Todd Browning, is uncomfortable with sound. Yeah. I don't think he likes it at all. Well, I feel like it's a certain breed of this era where I just think there's a lot of people that just cannot move mm -hmm. into that space. Yeah. And for someone uh, like him, 
to be probably someone who struggles to move into that space to then commit to doing it three different ways uh it's not only ambitious, it's almost foolish in a way. Like We mentioned the room earlier. Technically, Tommy Wiseau tried to do that by taping two cameras together. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, one will be a film and one will be a video. <laughs> there, nothing could possibly go wrong with that. No, no, everything is going great in Wiseau land. <laughs> and it honestly did go well for him. So <laughs> it did. <laughs> it ended up working out. Shit, should we so. be doing that going forward, scrapping iPhones to fucking Bolexes? Yes, that's what I've been doing <laughs> for years. So Maybe that's what Stanley Cooper Kubrick would be doing if he was still alive. I mean, he probably would. Look, that non-human camera is right here. Let me just strap it right here to my cool little device. God, I wish Stanley Kubrick lived to see the invention of the <laughs> iPhone. What, just for watch him to shake his fist and bang his head on a I table? I feel like he would have been a Sodenberg type and he would have made oh, an entire film on iPhone. That's a good point. He wouldn't have been this film purist. None of this Tarantino Nolan nonsense. No. It's, no, no, no. It's not nonsense. Film on film, guys, if you can afford it. Yeah. Um, but that being said, it would have been cool. He could have been like, all right, now here's a skateboard and here's a stick. And I'm oh going to. Oh, my God. <laughs> if, uh, if fucking Kubrick made Jackass 3D, that would have been the best case scenario. <laughs> it's just a long shot of Johnny Knoxville staring in the yeah. distance. Oh, no, Bam Magiera, because he's drunk off his ass, staring into oh, the camera. Bam Magiera and Stanley Kubrick would have gotten along so well. <laughs> Hi, this is Bam, and I'm about to pull a prank on my Uncle Stanley. <laughs> yeah. Slaps the shit out of him, and then Kubrick smacks him back. <laughs> Being like, no, 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 no. The only one getting punked around here is you. <laughs> That's not our show. Doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm John Knoxville, and this is the birth of man. <laughs> Anybody out there want to re edit 2001 A Space Odyssey's opening with Corona? Please. Oh, that'd do. be great. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard. I may end up doing it tonight after we're done. God, such a great idea. <laughs> um, now. <laughs> Um, again, this is filmed in three different languages with the actors delivering their wines once in English, once in German, and once in French so that the post-sync dialogue could match the language to which the film was sold. So this theoretically was filmed three times uh, in terms of like your takes. So three takes is actually going to be nine takes. Um, and uh, there's no record of this English version ever being completed for distribution. And in fact, the final version that we have is a combination of the French version and the German version. Um, and there's actually talk about their one being a Denmarkian version, but we'll get to that in a minute. Um, a Danish version, sorry, not Denmarkian. <laughs> That's, it's not too late. We can rename it. Yeah. Denmarkian. Ooh. Danish. Um, the churchyard scenes, by the way, uh, are, are interesting. Again, we're talking about an independent film collapsing. It's not a churchyard. It's a barn with a bunch of tombstones stuck around it. Um, so it's very Ed Woodian in that respect. Like, no, no, no. Just put a bunch of cardboard uh, tombstones there and you got yourself a nice fresh graveyard. Um, and the chateau uh, scenes were shot um, uh, a little bit early on in the beginning and the crew was staying in the chateau. They complained about it because it was an unpleasant affair filled with cold drafts hitting the house and uh, a rat infestation. So great place to put your crew. But this is the 1930s. This was expected. I mean, I'm sure John Ford told John Wayne to sleep in a rat infested cot at one point. Um, Cause it, if, if he didn't, that's fine. But I just like to think about him doing that, making him suffer. Mm -hmm. um, now uh, those churchyard scenes are filmed in August of 1930. Uh, the style of this film, though, as it's carried out throughout, doesn't start off the way you uh, initially would think. There was actually an intent to have this be as stylized, um, conceivably like a Murnau film. And then one day, 
the the cinematographer showed him the dailies and it kind of looked accidentally fuzzy and it had a haze about it. And I'm sure Mateo was just like, oh, I'm sorry, we'll reshoot. And he's like, no, 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 no. Hold it. Don't. Rudolph, have you got some cloth? <laughs> and do you have some kind of a stick to stick it out from the, from the camera? Yeah, sure. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make we're going to make something beautiful out of this because the final result is a hazed look. They did this, and I love this, by putting a gauze filter sticking three feet out from the camera to recreate that look each time. As a result, this thing looks like a dream. And if David Lynch isn't doing this when he makes Twin Peaks episodes, I'm very fucking ashamed of him. <laughs> um, um, to take that, you film legend, you. <laughs> we'll show him. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm just going to hang out in my basement and predict the weather. Whee! Um, now, um, let's get into the plot of this film. Let's yeah. open it up. Because we don't have a lot to go through in terms of this plot. We really don't. Very, very simple. We have um, some kind of an emo goth kid named Alan Gray who is uh, obsessed with the occult. <laughs> um, the opening text goes as such. This is the tale of the strange adventures of young Alan Gray, which is my favorite Nickelodeon show. Yeah. Um, right there up a secret world of Alex Mack, um, who, who versed himself in the study of devil worship and vampires. Preoccupied with superstitions of centuries past, he became a dreamer for whom the line between the real and the supernatural became blurred. His aimless wanderings led him late one evening to a secluded inn by the river in a village called Cortempierre. Alan Gray, fishing gear in hand arrives at this inn. Um, and there is this image that we'll see very early on that you would think is the primary image of the movie given the Criterion cover for it. Yeah, It's a man with a scythe. Um, and in fact, this is a scene that was shot um, uh, with the a shadow of the scythe coming over the youngest daughter that we'll talk about later in the film. That is not there in the movie anymore. Uh, so the Criterion cover is actually a frame blow up. So we know it was shot but it was excised at a certain point. Why, whether it was intentional or if it was because of being lost to history, we will probably never know. Uh, but uh, that image of the scythe is around. And I remember the first time watching it going like, oh, that's the lead in. This guy's going to be the vampire. <laughs> and no, he's no, he's just a, he's just a worfman. He's the guy holding a scythe. Yeah, it's not bad. I mean, he's doing his job properly. I have yeah. nothing against him. We all have to have jobs. <laughs> yeah. And his is holding a scythe. His is holding a scythe. Do they use scythes anymore? Do you think? Or is, or is like far, modern farming technology made that? Now we have robots that hold scythes now. So. <laughs> I wish we had. It's like Scyther in Pokemon. Yeah. But it's a robot Scyther. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's what we use on farms now. Yeah. That'd be <laughs> fucking dope. Um, there's a next card, though, that says, It's an eerie, moonlit night. Lights and shadows, voices and faces seem to take on hidden meaning. Alan Gray felt a sinister force descend upon him. In vain, he fought the terror that seized him, and fear of things he could not name haunted his restless sleep, which, relatable. Yeah. <laughs> um, there is, like, this opening has a lot of interesting perspective shots, too. Um, I love this perspective shot of the... The camera is tilting up to the top of the end before he enters the frame. Mm. So it's almost it's him first and then he comes in. And we we're looking at an editing style that really doesn't have a central. It's on it's it, it looks unfocused, but it's not. It's mm -hmm. it's it's very unique. It is very much like a dream. And you will see this pop up years down the line in so much artwork. Yeah. Like it, it is it's kind of stunning to see. 
I mean, I'll call it right now, David Lynchian editing as far back as 1932. Um, not to say that it wasn't happening, but this is seemingly a, a straightforward narrative commercial movie that Driver's making, mm-hmm. and yet he is infusing it with dreamlike atmosphere, kind of like Caligari. Yeah. Again, no reason the film shouldn't work. Um, and so we have this shot of a weather vane that brings us back into his room, uh, and he is freaking out a little bit inside. There's some internal terror and he starts seeing the door opening by itself and the lock and turn. And it's very ominous. Um, it's, it's unsettling. And we see an old man enter his room, which equally unsettling, I guess, if he just wandered into your room. Um, and he kind of just mills around and, uh, tells people she must not die, <laughs> which I would, if, if somebody did that, just came out and said one blank sentence, handed a, handed me a, a book wrapped in a paper bag, I'd be like, excuse me, why? <laughs> why me? Yeah. Why here? Who? What? Who are you? Yeah. Uh, he doesn't know. And I think that the the look on Julian West or de Gunsberg is very much the look of, duh. Yeah. But it works because we're as confused as him. Yeah. So duh plays off very well. Like his inability to act is a godsend to the movie, yeah. which you will never really hear that phrase uttered ever again <laughs> on this show, any show you hear. Yeah. Um, and so this old man is saying she must not die. He writes a little bit on a bundle of uh, what seems like a bundled package. He goes like, to be opened upon my death. Um, and he leaves the bundle there and then he retreats back out the door and leaves. And then Alan lights this candle to go and inspect. And he goes, what's going on? What's going on? What have I been bequeathed? And why is this old man here? And and, and who else? Who hands me brown paper packages? I don't know. I'm going to go find out. So he leaves and he starts milling around. And we really get this scene where he's inspecting what will be the whole, the abandoned factory where all of the vampire shenanigans are really taking place. And there's a couple of images to come to mind. I want to hear the ones that stick out to you, but right off the bat, we have a shadow of a child playing where there's no source. And immediately I'm like, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out. Go go cross the river right now. Um, And then he starts wandering inside the factory and almost seems to be calling him a little bit. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't know if, like, I I don't know if you read the same thing into it, but it almost seems like it's calling him without him realizing it. No, that's definitely how I interpreted it. It was very, it is, I mean, I know it's a vampire movie, but it has definitely like sense of almost like a siren call of mm-hmm. like just luring him into it. It's uh, like similar to when you have the vampire power of like Mina, come to me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like like when you see like the shadows of the children or whatever. Like I, my first instinct was thought of that because I didn't know exactly how this was going to go. But I thought like very like almost like fair, fairies, like that kind of thing mm-hmm. of like that kind of like the, like the forest like luring him in. Yeah, so. exactly. And it's and it's unclear if this force is malevolent or yeah. ethereal or like uh, omniscient. Yeah. It's just there. And he sees the first instance of the of a really harsh shadow, which again, we're going to be talking about the more stylized versions of this. But First one is like, it looks like the first time I watched this, I thought he was a soldier Mm -hmm. um, who had lost a leg in the war. And he might be, yeah, yeah, yeah. he might be, but he sees the shadow of it and this guy gets up and walks away, but there's no source for the shadow. Mm -hmm. He does see though that that same gentleman is sleeping with no shadow Yeah, that I know how it's done. It's not hard to figure out how that's done. That's a matter of lighting it so that his shadow is not seen with him on screen, but then impersonating the shadow with a stand in. Yeah. But it's still fucking cool. I still love that. There's a version of that in um, uh, Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938 where they have 
them fighting. They're doing swashbuckling on one end of the screen. They disappear. You see their shadows enlarged on the other end, and that's two different stand-ins doing the reflection part, and then they're back on the other end of the screen to be seen at the end of the shot. So I love when people do that. But then the shadows get more intense because this, I am... Again, we know how this is done. It's very easy to do shadow puppets. You've yeah. seen them done before. Edgar Bergen did them the best in Fun and Fancy Free. <laughs> there's there's a shot as he's looking around this mill or this factory of a whole bunch of people hanging out with no source. Again, they're all fucking ghosts. Uh, and this is a panning shot, pretty much uncut. And it starts with people enjoying themselves and then dancing, and then there's a fucking shadow band. Yeah, it's unsettling. Uh, combined with the music that is that is utilized, the score for here, Dreyer worked close with the composer, mm-hmm. and it definitely shows because everything kind of feels like a wacky dream. Yeah, this was the first instance of me going like Lynch, Lynch, Lynch. Yeah. This is a Lynch move right here, easily one hundred percent. Because I I feel like I understand it, and yet I am more driven by my emotion than by my logic here. Yeah. And I think that that is played off perfectly. Um, and then the the next thing we get is another title card mm-hmm. pretty quickly in. The dialogue here amounts to, at the beginning of this, going like, come in the front door. Go that way. She must not die. Bah, bah, bah. Yeah. But that's even a title card. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm like... God, this is infrequent. But we get this title card of what was going on? What terrifying secret was unfolding? Alan Grant, Alan Gray, sorry, not Alan Grant. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great if Alan, Sam Neill was trapped in this movie. Oh, I'd be great. <laughs> There's no dinosaurs here, only vampires. <laughs> um, uh, F- Alan Gray felt a certain one thing. A soul in mortal distress was crying for help, and a voice within him urged to heed that call. And he keeps trying to heed that call because he, as he's walking around, he comes across an old looking doctor as he's coming down again. Like the, the geography of this is kind of like impenetrable. Like you, I think I understand it, but I'm uncertain per se. Like is the, is that a basement or is that a top flat? I don't know. All I know is, is that he comes across a kind of like, for lack of a better term, uh, a, a mad laboratory <laughs> yeah. filled with occult books and skulls and candles and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this doctor comes around and he ke- and he's wondering, did you hear that child? And he responds, yes, the child. And the doctor says, there's no child here. You fucking stupid. <laughs> he looks about that begrudged. Yeah. And he tells him, good night. Alan walks through and, um, and then there's another door behind it. And that's when we get the vampire now. The vampire appears to the doctor. This vampire is a woman. <laughs> Could you imagine? Could you imagine a woman vampire? No, Just, not in 1930s n- Europe. No, 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 no. I don't think we can imagine it today, given the way people reacted to the fucking Barbie movie. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. They're not allowed. <laughs> no female vampires, no female doctors, no female lawyers, nothing. <laughs> no. Get rid of them all. <laughs> Especially female vampires. That's a man's <laughs> job, just by Nick's. Um, <laughs> Noted masculine job, vamp- vampires. Imagine if there was one 
any head out there dedicating his YouTube channel to railing against female vampires. vampires. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, the doctor um, and Marguerite Chopin, mm-hmm. the vampire. We will find out more about why Marguerite is uh, who she is in a little bit, but they kind of show a ritual going on. Mm-hmm. It's not really definite what's going on. Like there's, there's a bunch of shit going on in there. Um, and uh, we kind of have this, the 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 there's there's these shots of digging that are happening alongside of it and it's clear that the little henchman is uh grabbing uh, grabbing space for the marguerite chopin and maybe grabbing even bodies even again it's he's kind of walking through this dream and here's a question that we can ask ourselves do we think anything going forward consists of a dream now there's a definitive moment where you can make the call yes or no but I would argue that this entire movie is a fucking dream. Well, yeah. I don't even think that there's a there's a I don't think there's any real given point where you could discern the difference between dream and reality until one scene with a doctor. Yeah. Um. But uh, in the occult room, we have the the vampire Marguerite hands the doctor a vial of poison that does have some importance in the vampire lore of this piece. Um. The doctor places it on the shelf, and now outside, though, Alan sees amidst a very thick shadowy fog which uh is really permanent throughout this movie in different ways and in fact i know this is primarily shot has to be shot in daylight but daylight is treated a certain way to feel like night it's very very weird again another reason why i think the whole thing's a fucking dream mm-hmm. because n- nighttime is not discerned at all yeah. there's no like filter over it there's no blue tint mm. or anything like that there might have been but we don't have that print to confirm it yeah um so he he has the next card here where he says he followed the fleeting shadows he came to a large estate where a forlorn manor rose up amongst ancient trees here in seclusion with only his two daughters and a few servants lived the man who had appeared to alan gray earlier at the inn so we kind of get a little bit more about this lord of the manor, this master of the house, keeper mm. of the Um And at the estate, though, the man is uh, checking in on a woman sleeping. Uh, it turns out that this is his daughter, Leona, um, and she is clearly vampire bitten because she's crying out for the blood. <laughs> yeah. um, and he tells um, he tells her to be awake when the doctor arrives. So we've got somebody coming, somebody to come in and check on her. Hopefully it's not that doctor we saw earlier today. Um, and uh, from outside though, Alan is starting to peek in and he's getting a little voyeuristic um, and he starts to see what's going on through the estate. Um, and then from a shadow upside down, Alan sees the peg-legged man come into the house and shoot the father. And that shadow is fucking dope. Like, though, because our perspective is just so flipped upside down and the way it's constructed, it feels like abstract art at a certain point. Mm-hmm. Like, I was, like, floored by that edit. Um, he goes in there and rushes and tries to relieve the man because he's been shot. Um, and, like, all the people of the house, like the servants are in the house, and they come to tend to him, too. Um, and the daughter... Uh, the younger daughter uh, comes to uh, uh, comes in there to see what's going on, and she's very stone faced throughout the most of the movie. And again, kind of like Alan, it works for her because she's kind of stunned by the proceedings of what's going on. She's not really like, like I don't know. You give her any more to do, like it might feel disingenuous. The mm-hmm. other daughter's far more needed to be crazy because she's turning into a vampire. Yeah. Um, and so. Alan uh, 
the the people of the house try to go out to get the police, and it's revealed that the peg leg man is kind of milling around out there. Um, from here, though, we start seeing Alan trying to figure out what's going on. Why has this man been shot? Why is the older daughter acting the way she is? Who the who the hell is this peg leg man? I better open up this package that the man gave me because <laughs> he did say upon his death, read this shit. And so I'm going to read it. And we get not just title cards. But it's like full a full on. book. Like we, it's- we, you know, there is a there is a phrase that gets said out there by people who don't want to watch foreign films where they're like, I don't want to read a movie. Well, luckily, this movie just gives hands you a book. Yeah, <laughs> that, and it's and like that's an entire part it, of this. Movie. In this specific case, I will say I have this is a five star movie, but I shouldn't have to read a fucking book. Yeah, <laughs> if, I should be able to read lines. <laughs> yeah, I can read line. lines. Lines yeah. is fine. Title uh, cards, okay. title cards, totally cool. But when you start to have like three Star Wars opening crawls in your movie, <laughs> uh, it, it, it starts to become a little ridiculous. Can, <laughs> I, can I read it for you? Accounts from many ages and lands of the tell of a terrible demon called vampires. Their bo- bodies and souls of the dead who have terrible deeds in life deny them any response in the grave. Under the bright light of the full moon, they rise from their graves to suck the blood of children and young adults and thus prolong their shadowy existence. The Prince of Darkness is their ally and lends them supernatural powers among the living and the dead. And those dead speak, which speak of the rise of Palpatine. (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, at a certain point... It's, I don't know how they would get that information across verbally. The so. entire Star Wars franchise was consisted of ser- 30 serials, the the hero legend, and of course, Vampire. And the van- Vampire. It's and Vampire. Now, everyone, you can see the Vampire influences on the entire Star Wars franchise. Well. Oh, yes. I do yeah. remember at one point when Marguerite Chopin says, it is your destiny. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> which, yeah. by the way, that was an alternate title from this movie, which was Destiny. Yeah, I just love the bridge into the third act of this film when they go, somehow Vampire has returned. And so... <laughs> Was that Oscar Isaac saying it? I forgot that part of yeah, the movie. Yeah, he makes a brief cameo <laughs> in this movie. So. It's Dominic Moynihan in the background going yeah. like, why am I here? Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, yeah, I wanted to be in a Star Wars movie. <laughs> now you're definitely in a Star Wars oh, movie. Oh, yeah, and I love when the uh, when the Lord of the Manor, when he's dying, he goes, come here, granddaughter. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh. Ra- Star Wars Rise of the Vampire. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a perfect Star Wars yeah. movie for me. <laughs> none of this fucking mythology bullshit. Yeah, just no vampires. None, none of this talk about like how they don't ad- ad- adhere to the logic of Star Wars. It's fucking fantasy. Stick yeah. a vampire in Star Whatever. Wars. <laughs> they could be hanging out in Jabba's palace. I don't give a shit. Yeah. I want a fucking vampire, maybe a Frankenstein monster in there. I know there's been wolf men in that fucking universe because yeah. I saw him in the first movie. Yeah. <laughs> um, now the daughter... Um, um, in bed, though, disappears. Wow. So Alan stops reading his fascinating book read by George Lucas to go and find out what's going on with the younger daughter. And they find her. In, and I love this. Actually, this is a single shot. Like, it's it's simple. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But I just like the way it's it pans over to her still being there. It follows the nun in the house, which, by the way, there's a nun living in this house, which I'm like, man, they are r- fucking rich. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, they go over there. Uh, she goes over there to tend to something else and then they pan over back and she's gone. And I'm like, that's just a very nice little elegant way of communicating somebody has disappeared without having flash and bang and smoke and mirrors and agencies of deception, Mr. Wayne. You know, like it's very, very elegant and nice. Yeah. Um, now, uh, uh, before he reads though, he does, I want to read part of the book because the the way he weaves the vampire lore 
is sort of similar but different to what Murnau did to get around Bram Stoker by kind of refudging some words. It goes, at night, these creatures from the abyss seek the seek out the abodes of the living where they sow death and destruction. The victim who falls prey to vampires spell the vampire spell is doomed to perish without hope. A wound in the throat, in appearance similar to the, that received from the bite of a cat or a rat, is the mark of demar- mark of damnation. Neither medical science nor impasse, and that's when it kind of cuts off there. And I'm like, that's kind of interesting where they're kind of giving you no hope. So like when you watch it, you almost think like, well, is this vampire curse impenetrable? Kind of like some of the visuals in this movie. Is it like, it doesn't matter. You're fucked to be a vampire no matter what, no stakes. They clarify that. But I, I remember watching it the first time going like, this might be different. Like this might be no like cure for vampirism in this movie whatsoever. Um, sadly, that's not the case. It'd be cool if you kind of like threw that in there going like, Man, like, there's no fucking hope for any of these guys. They're doomed, period. Um, now, uh, they go out and ser- to search for They rush out, and there's this l- hazy fog seeping in again. Um, and we see that Marguerite has been feeding on her outside on a log. Um, and then they find her when Marguerite goes, Oh, no, I must flee. And they get her and bring her back into the house. Um, and as she's brought in and tended to upstairs, Alan continues to read his book and it goes, for the lust of the vampire is transmitted like a plague to the victim who in turn finds itself torn between the thirst it feels for blood and a desperate repulsion towards this very craving, which I like that deference of going like slowly, but surely it's like, I hate myself, but I love myself. I hate myself, but I love myself. The innocent young person is thus made a vampire itself and in turn proceeds to seek its own prey among the, those nearest and dearest to it. In this way, entire families, even entire villages are brought under the heavy curse, which again, we talked about this in, in Nosferatu, but the idea of the plague of rats mm-hmm. and everything like that. So it's not just, I love it, it's, it's not just the person that's affected. It's the community. Yeah. And it speaks again to the different parts of the vampire lore that unfortunately have their roots in fucking uh, xenophobia. Yeah. <laughs> um, but are elements that when you remove that xenophobia are pretty interesting sci-fi and horror tropes. Yeah. Um, so the nun and... Uh, and the daughter are tending to Leona and Leone seems to awake from the spell and begins to sob. If only I could die. She proclaims herself damned. And then in the madness, uh, the young daughter becomes aghast suddenly when she sees, and this is beautiful fucking acting from the, from Leone. <laughs> she goes from sad to fucking terrifying. She pulls a fucking Dwight Fry out of her and just looks like, the definition of creepy grin. Yeah. Like the, you know, the constant phrase, that would be a great joker. Yeah. Like that's a great joker right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, not Harley Quinn. Joker. joker. <laughs> <laughs> we need female joker here and she's it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's, um, uh, there's a cut to Alan being told that the carriage has, uh, returned. Um, and then they see from that carriage that, it's dripping with blood. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so clearly no police are arriving here today. No. Um, and we get that shot that might have been a poster image and had not been excised, which is the uh, scythe going yeah. across the young daughter sleeping on a bench. Um, uh, and Alan goes back in to look more at the book. Um, and the carriage 
as he's going back and to read the book, the carriage disappears and the attendant of the estate is kind of leading the horses away. He's kind of like, I didn't know if he was like the, the groundskeeper or something like that or like an uncle, whatever yeah. the fuck. He's just kind of. He's around. Yeah, he's kind of like, he, he's he's kind of a, he's kind of the Robbie Coltrane of this. Like yeah. he, he means well, but he may not know exactly what he's doing. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, th- uh, we go into book three <laughs> that yeah. I called it yeah. here. Um, the ghosts of uh, ex- executed criminals are in their service. Yet the living too may fall under their dreadful sway. An account from Hungary tells the story of a doctor in a country village who, having sold his soul to the evil one, became a henchman and in doing so was rendered an accessory to the whole series of horrid crimes in that region of the country. So we might be getting some clues here. Um, And then the doorbell rings. Um, Alan listens in to find that the doctor... The doctor tending to Marguerite Chopin has come to Siliona. So hell, the audience is going no. Um, and uh, Alan sees uh, sees sees the old gent going up the stairway there to attend to Leon. He follows the doctor up with his bag. Um, ten, can, kind of lays low, casual. Um, doctor enters and finds the condition bad. Finds it. This is this is hard. This is rough. Um, Alan comes in to watch and asks if she can be saved. The doctor says, well, maybe she would need some blood. <laughs> um, and Alan grows weary at this little revelation, going like, oh, <laughs> I'm just reading that. Um, and so the doc asks is he, if he is willing to do a transfusion of his blood, and then he lays out his instruments. Now, this is interesting here because he does make the decision to have the blood drawn. But <clears throat> this is where the acting by the doctor gets interesting because... The scene that follows from a sound perspective Mm -hmm. is Alan feeling woozy out on a bench after he has given blood. And he is wondering, what have you done with my blood? Where is it? And the doctor kind of fools him going like, it's in that girl. Don't worry. I'm happening. I'm attending to a rise darkness powers. And (laughs) like, no, (laughs) like it literally it it almost tricks you a little bit because he is disoriented. And yeah. and I will say, like, we're making fun of Julian West a little bit here. Yeah. He's good at looking disoriented. No, he, he is. He yeah. knows good pantomime. He's not yeah. it's it's not easy to do pantomime, but it's also not like impossible. Yeah. And I think he's getting across those blurred lines because that's when I think that the lines become completely blurred beyond all belief. Yeah. Everything that up to now could have been explained away yeah this is where i think it's like no this is either a dream or this is reality yeah one of the two depending on how you view the film yeah um which if it if you think it's if, if it's not a dream and it's real then it seems even more fucking horrifying yeah if it's a dream then the ending for the doctor is completely unwarranted and this becomes murder yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. uh so uh the attendant uh, goes to uh, downstairs while Alan's giving the transfusion. He goes, oh, look, a book. And <laughs> he, he goes to read it and goes, and it goes, once the vampire senses that the victim is completely within its grasp, it does everything within its power to drive the victim aw- uh, drive the drive the victim to the act of suicide. Now that's a new little twist on the yeah. vampire lore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in this way, delivering that soul to the evil one. I'm like, just say fucking Satan. Jesus yeah. Christ. Which At could, a certain point. Could you not afford the trademark of Satan? We've already pissed off France. We can piss <laughs> off Italy too. <laughs> Everybody. Now for the man who dies at his own hand is lost for eternity to such a man, the golden gates of heaven are closed. Interesting. We're finally getting some Christian allegory here, yeah. considering that one of the shots that's removed from this film was a 
portion of the of the film where uh the sun beams in through a four-way window a four mm-hmm. a four corner window and it gives the image of a cross Ooh, and, interesting and then and one of the i think it's marguerite repels from it yeah that is removed and one of the things they brought up in the Criterion uh, uh, essay is that this film seems devoid of Christianity. Yeah. But that is a clear example of, like, at least from a text standpoint, yeah. the concept of religion is tied to vampirism, but the imagery is not defining that for us. So huh. I find it, it, like, it's not something you can, I don't know if it's something you did dissect upon per se, but I find it interesting. Like, here's interesting a note yeah, on the film. It's like here's a vampire movie that has nothing to do with a fucking cross, essentially. Yeah, <laughs> which seems counterintuitive because it's like, no, well, then we can't have it burn into our forehead. Yeah, like, <laughs> like that was a that would be great if that was a shotgun. Like it's going to vent into our forehead. That seems very gruesome for 1932. That this is also your pick Yeah, Europe in general is going to get a lot more gruesome in the next couple of years. Oh yeah, so. don't you, don't you know? I I'm, I call Theodore. I'm also an omniscient preacher. Did you know that uh, there's going to be some bullshit here in Germany in the next two years? Yeah. <laughs> it's going to last up until 1945. And uh, I'm also going to be in a Nazi-occupied form of Denmark. And uh, it's unclear whether or not I um, uh, appeased uh, these Nazi-occupied forces. Oops. Because there's not a lot of information about me. Bye. Uh, it's funny, though. He's not anti-Semitic. Mm-hmm. In fact, one of his earlier films was a film speaking out against anti-Semitism. Yeah. So I find it weird Probably for survival reasons, he was making films in a Nazi-occupied form of Denmark. Yeah. So it's kind of like, okay, are you acquiescing? What are you doing? What's going on? Yeah. Unclear. Kind of like Japanese filmmakers during the war who literally would have a gun to their back. Yeah. (laughs) So um, Alan is led out of the room by the nun to sit down, and that's when we get that blurred line. Um, The book is going on. for who can decipher the riddle of life and death and who can penetrate the dark secrets concealed from the light of day for just as strange as a vampire's existence, equally strange in the manner of their demise. These dead cannot find peace must be murdered to deliver a tormented humanity from their grip. Now, Alan, our mountain drained is calling out to the doctor. Um, and he tells him that the blood is there. Uh, the book carries on with a very startling revelation. In the village of Kislova, haunted by a, a generation ago by a vampire in the form of an old woman, the following procedure was used. At dawn, the grave was opened and the old woman was found lying asleep as uh, lying as if asleep. An iron stake was driven through her heart, nailing her horrid soul to the earth. She then died a true death and the curse had been laid upon herself and her victims, victims were broken. Now, Alan is lying in the chair and he starts hearing a chant from the doctor. Come, follow me. We shall become one soul, one blood. Follow me. Death is waiting. So that's one of those elements of like, well, I think vampires do exist in this world. Yeah. Now, uh, this is when we get the even more interesting part. So that revelation of Kislova is to tell us about the death. Um, Our attendant, groundskeeper goes on to read that just 25 years ago a murderous epidemic claimed 11 victims in the village of Contempierre 
doctors assigned the plague a medical name, but a persistent rumor circulated among the people that a vampire was the cause of the scourge. Many firmly believe that a vampire to be none other than Marguerite Chopin, what? who lay buried in the village cemetery. All her life, Marguerite Chopin had been a monster in human form. She died an unrepentant soul, and the church denied her last sacraments. Again, another thing that could tell you, is this a dream or is it real? Because if she's dead and the thing has already been commenced in terms of staking her how'd she become a vampire again yeah or did they think they killed her and they were and they were like and it's similar like somehow palpatine has returned (laughs) somehow chopin has returned (laughs) shit this is the rise of skywalker of vampire movies somehow things whatnot yeah yeah here's here's a red room (laughs) (laughs) uh now the door opens though and the attendant uh as the attendant is reading he sees that the doctor is ascending the stairs and a cry is heard. Alan, who is asleep, sees visions of a skeleton handing him the poison, oh. which I'm like, danger. Yeah. <laughs> um, you should never trust anything from skeletons. No. If not you don't at all. know the skeleton, you should not trust the skeleton. No, don't trust the skeleton. I like that shot, by the way. I don't know if you like it. It, it may be a little no, it's stilted. A good shot. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It's a little stilted, but it's just like, I love like. I love never underestimating those kind of shots because, yeah. yes, you can tell that it's. If somebody took an anatomy yeah. skeleton and just went reach out to that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's kind of cool. I, I like that more than a CGI skeleton doing yeah. anything. Cause I'm like, I can tell that's real and who knows it might be moving. Yeah. Um, so the doctor is attending to Lorraine and it's conceived by this point because he's seen the poison that, uh, the poison is now intended for Leon. So Leone grabs the poison from the dresser, but, uh, the doc- as the doctor's arriving, Alan goes in and stops him and gets the poison away from Leona. So this is the point where Alan is trying to go into defensive mode, seemingly, and trying to save the situation. Yeah. Um, he rushes now down the stairs where shadows are dressed in a, adjust kind of in a flurry as if though there are spirits abound. And I love the lighting techniques of here. Like lighting mood changes constantly in certain mm-hmm. scenes to depict the spirits or evil or something. Yeah. It's very vague. Yeah. Like it's very vague, but it looks very fucking cool. Yeah. Um, and then we have the nun saying a prayer at the beside of Leon and she goes, I am damned my God. And the attendant says she must uh, live until the sunrise because the attendant goes, I read a book. I can do this. Yeah. So the attendant is going to go out and do the thing the book told him to, which is stake that motherfucker down to the ground again. Yeah. Um, just to make sure. <laughs> um, and now this is where we get the fucking very clear allusion to an out of body experience because as Alan lies himself on the, on a bench outside after he's wandered out mm-hmm. to try to, to try to save the day, he becomes basically he has an out of body experience yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it looks really neat. It yeah. looks really cool. Um, there's a, there's fur, and it's beautiful amid the landscape to kind of watch him floating around in there. But I do want to kind of read in definition what goes on at this point. The out of body experience or dream has him wander off the grounds of the mill once more where he sees a coffin. So in the factory, he sees a coffin and he looks at the lid from dust thou art until dust thou shalt return. Um, uh, and then it says at the bottom, oh, brother, where art thou? <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, he tries to assemble the pieces of it. Uh, he uncovers the coffin to see his own body in there. Uh, it's implied 
that he has slipped with a paralytic poison. Um, so he looks out the door window next to see the young daughter tied up to a frame. So at some point, the doctor got the daughter tied her up to this uh, to this frame to go like, yo, the next vampire victim. Uh, again, though, how she got there, like she ran up, but we don't know. Like, yeah. it, like there's logic gaps, kind of like in a dream. Yeah. Um, and so the doctor arrives back at the mill. The peg leg assists him also in tow. The ghost hides to observe. Yeah. Which I'm like, you can stand there. You're a ghost. You're a ghost. You can do whatever you want. Unless, can the doctor, seeing that he's working for the dark one. Yeah, yeah, Can he and the assistant, who also, again, might be a vampire given the fact that his shadow can fucking escape wherever yeah. he want to. Can they just, can they see the ghost version of Alan? Can they not? It's not clear, really. I like to imagine they can't. <laughs> or they can, and they're just like, we know you're there. <laughs> you know, you, you gotta let ghosts lie, you know. Let sleeping ghosts lie. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, because there's no dogs in here. The doctor already told us. Uh, no, do- no dogs right, in here, so yeah, the sleeping no dogs, dogs cannot lie. Ghosts no can, though. <laughs> ghosts can lie. They're clear that they can. Um, now, the doctor, again, they, the doctor and the peg leg man arrive back. Alan runs behind and tries to see what's going on. We see the peg leg man and the doctor prepare to encase Alan's regular body in the casket, um, which I've referred to a difference as like him in the casket, mildly interesting. Him as a ghost, very interesting. Yeah. So this is uh, this is not David Blanders. This is David Manners. <laughs> <laughs> um, now the, uh, the vampire um, is observing the encasement here. There's this great POV shot of the casket with the face window being lowered onto it. And basically I think he's screwing her, screwing him in mm-hmm. um, um, instead of like hammering it. Um, and it's kind of eerie because it's a light sound effect that yeah. he's using. And all this is post synced. So he's using something very soft and delicate. He's not trying to make it obvious. Yeah. Like the sound in here is not an obvious element. Yeah. Apart from the music. And in fact, the animals aren't even natural because that's apparently all humans doing animal imitations. Yeah. (laughs) Which it's like, we didn't think to go get sound of a dog. He's like, no, no, human sound better. (laughs) Dog dog contracts are just a nightmare to deal with and getting the rights for a dog's uh, life released. And so I understand. We tried to get Vin Tin Tin, but his contract was outrageous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and, and he, he would have liked the rat-infested grounds that we were staying on, but... <laughs> Unfortunately, that's just labor laws. We couldn't inf- we couldn't afford the fancy rats. <laughs> so yeah. He could ha- couldn't put it in the budget. You gotta get the non-union rats in so, there. So, so. I, went to, I went to Julian and I said, can you make dog noises? Are you the Mel Blanc of your generation? Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, now we, uh, we get that the doctor telling his other underlings to leave. The coffin is carried outside. There's a POV shot that lasts for a while. From the coffin up of the ceiling, you are you are in there. Yeah. And the first time I watched this, I felt uneasy. Yeah. Because I was like, I'm in there and mm-hmm. I don't like it. It's the there's one or two shots that Quentin Tarantino does for Kill of Kilba Volume Two where she is where the bride is getting yeah. buried, where it's kind of feels like that. But that side shot, and it's the same thing with the movie Buried. 
that side shot usually indicates to me I am not there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this was the exact opposite where I'm like, I'm there and I don't like I don't like it. Like I've never really been carried other when if I've ever been on like a stretcher at a hospital when mm-hmm. like an operation, whatnot, I've never been in a situation where I've been floating like that. And it's uneasy and I don't like it. Yeah. Um, and so the they carry the body um uh past the bench, and we see that Alan is still a ghost. Um, and so he looks um um, uh, he looks on at the graveyard past it to see the attendant, um, has broken, has opened up a broken tomb split right in half. Very, very easy for him to, it's very easy open, uh, graveyard there. Um, and, uh, it's Marguerite's grave. Um, and it's, it's unclear if the attendant to me knows that, uh, Alan is there because on the one hand, he's not paying attention to Alan. On the other hand, it seems like whatever movements he's doing body wise could only be done if Alan was there (laughs) because he starts handing nothing yeah like pieces of dirt and rock yeah and gets handed a stake by the ghost but i'm like that doesn't make sense but again this is a dream it's a dream it doesn't matter it's like something's there well thanks handy ghost this whole stake will come in handy for i can bury margarita into hell yeah (laughs) like it was kind of interesting because this movie fucks with your logic points it's like is this happening is this not happening i don't know um and then we uh see that leon has wakened the moment that the stake is driven through Marguerite Chopin's body. Mm-hmm. Um, and this staking scene, by the way, was cut down in Germany significantly. They requested that. And so it goes up to a shot of the sky, but there's more of it cut through it. And I love this staking scene because not a lot is shown, um, but we do get the shot of Chopin in there and then it kind of just literally turns into a skeleton yeah. <laughs> and it's like a really cool little jump at it going like oh that's cool yeah. I kind of love the idea of that happening in future vampire movies I don't need it turning to dust don't turn it into dust you don't need to explode like true blood just yeah, no you shift to a skeleton <laughs> shift to a skeleton collapse to the ground yeah kind of like Mars attacks except it's not green yeah glow in the dark skeletons are cool but I don't need them in this movie no. No. Um, now the body is rested back in place uh Leone, uh, Leone, I keep calling her Leone, Leona. Um, it's not Sergio Leone. <laughs> be interesting if Sergio Leone played the daughter in this movie. Well, of course. Um, uh, Leona goes, I feel strong. My soul is freed. Um, and she is at rest and she is no longer a crime candidate to play Joker. Oh. Um, yeah, sorry. No, maybe she can Better play luck next time. Maybe she can play Batgirl. Oh, wait, that project got canceled. Never mind. Yeah. No. Um, uh, meanwhile, the peg leg plays a banjo while the doctor sits around when all of a sudden a rumble occurs at the site. They see both the flash of a ghostly face. Now they're kind of like, they think that their deed is done. Yeah. And again, the logic of where they are and how they took care of it, they've already clearly buried Alan quote unquote, but they're just seemingly there all of a sudden. And then, Gotta love when this happens. A giant apparition of the father's face appears in the window. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it is the glory Monty Python-esque beautiful. Yeah. Uh, because it freaks the shit out of him. Again, is he a ghost? Is it their own minds? Is this a dream? It uh, We don't know. Yeah. Um, And they, they get freaked out and they try to leave. And I love this, that the doctor um, is pushing the peg leg assistant off to the side going like, get away from me. And the peg leg assistant tries to go back up the stairs and you hear this blood curdling scream and he fucking collapses down to the ground. And I'm like, you've got a peg leg. It's already going to be hard to run upstairs. I'm assuming he fucking tripped and fell backwards. Yeah. I don't even think it's a ghost. <laughs> I think it's just, he's just like, 
he's gonna fall. Yeah. <laughs> like he's this is your your handicap unfortunately makes it difficult to walk upstairs fast. Yeah. Um and so that's when Alan, presumably not buried, <laughs> who knows, uh sets the young daughter free from the mill. Uh, and the doctor um, himself escapes to the flour mill portion, like where they grind all the flour up, and he gets trapped inside a flour mill cage. And he can see somebody above preparing to do their job. And um, and he keeps telling him, like, let me out, let me out. Can I? He's like, nope, can't. I don't hear any strange noises. Hey, where do you make this flour? Because after all, we work at a flour mill. And... <laughs> It's good that they explain that to the audience. (laughs) (laughs) I sure know. I make Wonder Bread. (laughs) And in this case, this movie's more like Wonder Dead. Am I right? (laughs) I was going to make a Wonder Bread (laughs) joke, but I like yours better. Yeah, we make Wonder Dead over here. We we over here in Denmark, Germany, whatever. I don't know. I'm just. Yeah, whatever. I'm a show from Brooklyn. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Just the Brooklyn (laughs) mill worker in (laughs) Eastern Europe. I'm on an exchange program. <laughs> oh, buddy! Wrong time, wrong place. <laughs> Shay, what's those uh, weird? That's a weird uh, army that's coming right to me. They're all uniformed in some strange little cross thing that's invited into some kind of cycle. Oh, that seemed very aggressive. <laughs> that's a real pointy spiral you they, guys got there. They keep saying Sieg hail. I don't understand it. <laughs> I don't see any hail. <laughs> it's not raining. <laughs> I love the idea of a fucking Brooklyn going like, say, what that over there looks like the government's being overthrown. Just the wild adventures of Bobby Flay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, regardless, this, our favorite Brooklynite mill worker. Yeah. Proceeds the process of filling up this area with flour, and uh, the doctor's like, "Fuck no, get me out of here!" Yeah. Meanwhile, the daughter, the young daughter, and Alan retreat. Uh, they are wandering off. They find a boat, yeah. um, and they they shove off to try to search for a place less filled with vampires and uh, flour mills. Yeah. Um, and originally, there was a scene. That incorporated the guy with the scythe again, where, um, or no, it was a, no, it was a boatman on the other side of the river that they were um, calling out for help, Interesting. and so there, the a boatman on the other end enlists a bunch of children to make a fire, and then they sing a hymn to oh, that guide them haunting. to yeah. guide them to safety. Yeah, I would agree. It would have been haunting. No, this is too. This is too creepy. Nah. Uh, I I've, I have a strange feeling that children singing hymns in in a foreign language for most Im- European and American audiences will come off as creepy, and this is just too creepy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to do it. No, I call Theodore Dreyer. will stop this right now. Yeah. And also, we don't need this Christian shit in this movie anyway. <laughs> not every movie needs to have Christianity in it. <laughs> Only most. <laughs> not everything is a fucking Jesus allegory. <laughs> That's gonna, everybody's going to say that about the Matrix revolutions and it's not fucking true <laughs> the Vachaskis told me so in a dream <laughs> and so meanwhile as they're escaping to freedom they at the end of the movie sorry at the end of the movie they walk off into a foresty sunset and at some point you could probably hear the Disney version of one song only for you yeah. um, and uh, meanwhile the doctor is just getting pounded by this mill 
this yeah. flower falling on him. It is unsettling because it intercuts in between it. And you see it at one point. I'm like, well, maybe he can make it out if he if he if he had worked no. against the current, he could have make it to the top yeah. and escape out the hole. But he's not a he's not that kind of a smart doctor. He's a yeah. dumb doctor. Yeah. And he allows himself to just become emaciated in this. And I I don't know if you how you feel about suffocation. Or being For it. or being t- <laughs> <laughs> well, well then you must have gotten quite a kick out of this scene. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we made this movie uh, with two purposes: to scare people and to also never kink shame somebody who enjoys suffocation. Hey, listen. We tried to be open. Here. We all have our things. Yeah, so. we're here in Germany. We tried to be very open, Henry, and we yeah. made this movie for you. Oh, that's good. <laughs> I'm glad. Um, no, uh, I I find suffocation or the idea of being trapped very terrifying. Yeah. Like again, that's why I felt uneasy with the with the being buried alive. Yeah. The idea of being trapped in this mill is horrifying, and it's the final shot where he's clung. Yeah. He's clearly already died yeah. or like or he's almost dead and he is it's just his arms clung to this mill. Yeah. And it's intercut to a point where as the lovers leave, the mill stops working. Yeah. So our friend Billy up there is like, "All oh, done for the day. So I'm going to go over to a beer hall." Yeah. And yesterday it was fucking nuts cuz there was a bunch of weirdos and one guy with a really interesting mustache in the middle of his nose talking about some kind of upheaval in the government. I I have no idea what he was talking about. Um I I heard that he apparently has been arrested. It seems like he's not going to be a problem anymore. Certainly not going to give him an opportunity to write a book in there. I hope he gets back to his painting. That that <laughs> seems like the best case scenario for. Him. Years later that old man is just going like I was a fucking moron I don't understand what was going on <laughs> yeah um, but uh, but then we get to the end uh, uh, Vampire uh, a Gunsberg production or Julian West production whatever the fuck now uh, the post production on, on this film let's talk a little bit about it All right. uh, there's some interesting stories attached to this so <clears throat> those differences in the French and German versions um, had a name change at one point. So instead of Alan Gray, he was David Gray, which, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but now this guy over and that I saw over the German office, they really hate the Al- name Alan over there. Really can't stand it. Um, and uh, in Germany, the flour mill death and the staking were trimmed down significantly. So th- right. they only got to see uh, like a little bit of the of the flour mill, which yeah. really sucks. Um. And then there were scenes that are not present from either print that existing um, that were shot and scripted. This include that the vampire recoiling from the shadow of the cross, as mentioned, um, and the ferrymen with the children. The only actors that dubbed their voices were Gunsberg and Schmitz, played Leona. Oh, okay. So the doctor didn't do it. The uh, the younger daughter didn't do it. So there's some unknown performers here at this point, which yeah. is kind of interesting to me because like, especially after talking with Keith Scott about the, all the voice actors that he was able to identify for cartoons of the era. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I want to know like voice actors for a bunch of shit. Yeah. And those documents would probably be even harder to find than the ones he found for Looney Tunes cartoons. Yeah. Um, you can look at the music sheets, apparently, the uh, music department notes, and find the actors. Oh, interesting. But I don't know how you would find these ones here. Yeah. Do you think Dreyer just found hobos and just had them record it? For hey, like it's, a it's economic. Uh, Swigaboos. Yeah. 
Just say some lines over here into this little uh, into this microphone, and you'll get yourself some whiskey. <laughs> Sounds very good. Yeah. And that's oddly enough how they're paying a lot of SAG voice actors today. Yep. Also true. Yeah. Hey. 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 Uh, pay people. Anyway, <laughs> uh, there was a Danish version of this film prepared with Danish cards over the German cards, but they could not afford to replicate the quality of the ones in the German print, so they used a fake one with a fucking web. <laughs> um, and <clears throat> you can see. English text versions of this movie through Criterion. And the reasoning for it, I thought was pretty interesting because they recreated the title cards. Mm -hmm. Now, why I forego shaking my fist is one, they're not saying this is a definitive version. But number two, they make a good point. White subtitles where there are white text makes it hard to read. Yeah. And if you watch this in either version, it is a little difficult to read sometimes. Yeah. So they do that and they try to replicate the title cards in tone and consistency as possible. Because again, there was no English version of this film ever fully released. Yeah. Seemingly never even made. I think the money ran out to be honest. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, Now the Danish distributors uh, wanted pages of the book being read to be covered with simple title cards. And Dreyer objected to that stating, the old book is not a text in the ordinary sense but an actor just as much as others. So there you go. Yeah. So that, you know, that justifies the book. Well, yeah, I don't justify having to be forced into a lesson, but I justify the book. If we're going to do the book, it's a good enough reason. (laughs) Yeah, it totally is. Um, Now we get into the reception of this film. This film premiered, uh, premiered at the same place that Nosferatu premiered. Um, and I want to pull up some notes on here from uh, from the descriptions because this is kind of insane. So the film is released by UFA. They pick it up for distribution. Mm-hmm. The studio wanted the American films Dracula and Frankenstein to be released first. So they delayed the release for a week. Yeah. I, th- I think that that's a detriment because Dracula, even as stilted as it is, is kind of more interesting from the sound perspective because yeah. of a guy named Bela Lugosi yeah. and Frankenstein is Frankenstein it's it's more interesting arguably than Vampire yeah uh, and Vampire is a mostly silent yeah vampire film yeah and they're like we've seen that before yeah FW did it before he went over to America that traitor yeah <laughs> um, and uh, so the Berlin premiere was held in May 6th of 1932 uh, at this premiere uh, the audience booed yeah <laughs> Fucking yeah. sucks. Yeah. Uh, it happens. Yeah. And it was distributed in France by the Socia- Societe Generale de Cinema, who also distributed Passion of Joan of Arc. So they're like, we weren't going to give you we weren't going to give you money for that other film, but say now we'll take this one, even though it's already paid for. Yeah. Uh and uh typical French. He had to cut scenes following the premieres of these films. Yeah. So he's trimming and trimming away. The more he trims away, less of this film exists in its current form. Yeah. And that's part of it is like people were not on the film's wavelength at the time of this. Um, there was a showing at Vienna where the people demanded their money back. Yeah. Um, and then when this is denied, a riot broke out and led to the police being called wow. to restore order with nightsticks. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the biggest honor you can have as a filmmaker is to incite a riot. Who who has anything applicable to that? Were there there were riots at Birth of a Nation? Yeah, but for other fucking reasons. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and and there is a 
there is an argument to be made that everybody rioted the mo- the moment that uh, the la- the last couple of Transformers movies were made. Yeah, because they said this isn't Michael Bay's pure vision, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we don't agree with it. Yeah, uh, no, in all sincerity, though, um, uh, at the point of this film premiering in Copenhagen, mm-hmm. Denmark, in March of 1933, Dreyer did not attend. <laughs> the reason is because soon after, he had a nervous breakdown. And went to a mental hospital in France. Hey, listen, things happen. This is the story of every fucking filmmaker ever. Yeah. It literally drives you to an insane asylum. You're not a auteur unless you at some point lose your mind. Don't let a film drive you insane. Eh. Be able to pull the brakes and be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. That's why I told them. I said, slow down. You don't have to make a bunch of movies like that. You could just enjoy your life. Yeah. It's very, very fucking simple. Yeah. Francis Ford Coppola said, you don't have to wait in the jungle for a bunch of for a bunch of shots to happen with Marlon Brando. Just relax and cast a more laid back actor. Yeah. yeah. Listen, if, if Francis Ford Coppola, instead of making Apocalypse Now, made Marley and Me, I think he would have been a lot happier. <laughs> I would pay very good money to see... Francis Ford Coppola's Marley, Marley and me. me. Yeah. <laughs> does Owen, I think he'd be a much happier person. Does now. Owen Wilson shoot the dog at the end of the movie? No, it plays out the... Ex- Listen, he respects the text that he's adapting. It's still a beautiful film about a man losing his dog, but... <laughs> does it have helicopters in it, or... Does eh, it, does you can it, throw a couple helicopters in there. Does the does Marley stop a bunch of Italian gangsters? Well, yeah, I mean that's the stuff that's in the original text as well. Oh, I never so. read Marley and Me, so I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh okay. Wow, man, that was a Mar. See, the movie that we have now sucked. That's why I said Benjamin Button's going to be way more interesting when yeah. I see it tomorrow. Exactly. <laughs> um, now the reception in this uh, press in Europe it ranged from mixed reception to flat out negative. Um, yeah. And the press in Germany was like, "Fuck no." <laughs> Yeah. Boo this movie. Boo. Yeah. <laughs> Boo ooh hoo. Yeah. And that's when I said, no, guys, let's be fair. You know, there's some artistry here. And they went, shut up, you stupid Brooklynite. <laughs> yeah. Just, I'm sorry, Billy. It's the wrong time, wrong place. Billy, we've had enough of your over optimism. <laughs> get back to the mill, Billy. You just need to get out of Go here. Go and make us some Thunder Bread <laughs> instead Listen. of giving your film critique. <laughs> It's just wrong time, Billy. That's when I said, one day I'm going to work for the Chicago Shun Times. <laughs> they, they will appreciate me much more. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was a, some press reaction um, uh, that said, uh, uh, <clears throat> that comes from the New York Times from Berlin. Mm. So they saw this in Berlin and went like, oh, hot story. This movie's garbage. Um, <laughs> no, they said, whatever you think of director Charles, Charles, <laughs> Carl. <laughs> yeah. You're Did Charles. you not read the program? Yeah. That's that's a little disrespect. They misspelled his name. Wait, let me read this as a New Yorker. Whatever you think of director Charles Theodore Dwyer, there's no denying that he is different. He does things that make people talk about him. You may find his films ridiculous, but you will not forget him. Although, in many ways, Vampire was one of the worst films I've ever attended. There were some scenes in it that gripped the audience, but with brutal directness. <laughs> like... Do you love it or hate it? I can't yeah, tell. I think yeah. you're fucking high. <laughs> like, um, and then the there's a press re- reaction from another New York Times oh, okay. <laughs> correspondent in Paris who said, and he he said that it was it's an hallucinating film that either had spectators spellbound as in a long nightmare or else moved them to hysterical laughter. <laughs> um, and uh, 
people seem to think uh, at the time that this is this is the weakest thing ever. This isn't as good as Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, you, you're a hack. You're a once you're a once in a lifetimer. You're Nicholas Windick Refn. All those kind yeah. of insults. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That last one was very specific, by the yeah. way, that they yeah. threw at him. And I'm like, which is they... really weird because it was like around like 50 years, way too early. <laughs> like, so. how, how did they know? Yeah. <laughs> That I I think that only God forgives is perfectly fine. And the neon demon, a classic. Listen, you can't you can't deny it. I love Billy. He's very very optimistic. He's, he's very optimistic in life. Yeah, drives the best. But I also like the other things. Yeah. Now this film since then though has gone on to be completely reevaluated. Uh, Guillermo del Toro, aka uh, the monster is really humanity, uh, has frequently stated that Vampire is a direct inspiration. And in fact, I guess. I couldn't confirm this because I'm not. I don't rewatch Guillermo del Toro's movies all the time. Yeah, but I and so I don't remember character names as much. Yeah, but apparently there is a character in one of his movies named Alan uh, Alan uh, Gray. Oh, after right. this movie, um, and there is if you go into Criterion Channel, there is a little observation on art uh, piece mm-hmm. uh, that talks about the melding of genres in here. And there's another one for two minutes where Guillermo del Toro is talking about this film, and yeah. it, it is really cool to kind of see how this film has been picked up um, by the modern aesthetic. And I can see that the work that Dreyer does in this movie at play in Guillermo del Toro's films. Oh, yeah. I can see that from the dream, like I said. Actually, Pan's Labyrinth kind of literally operates off of the basic notions of, is this a dream or is this reality? Yeah. Is this fantasy? Is this not? Like, that... Pan's Labyrinth has a lot more to draw off of and differentiating the vampire genre, mixing it up a little bit. Kronos was his first film. It's a very different vampire story. Yeah. You can't directly say that it's influenced by vampire, but I think that uh, there's aesthetic that definitely draws upon it. Yeah. Mood. Um, And I think all of his films, frankly, from Mexico have had that feeling. Devil's Backbone has a lot of the, feeling that I get with the shadows mm-hmm. um, uh, at play in this film. Um, but I think also, as we, as I mentioned earlier, David Lynch has probably seen Vampire at some point. Probably. But I think it's a more larger conversation about an abstract form of filmmaking that has been picked up through the years by yeah. people to create, in turn, even more abstract art. Because yeah. there is a mood that Lynch has which I think you've described it as like you can watch uh, somebody sweeping a room for 20 minutes. Yeah. But if you're not in tuned into the emotion, you're going to find it boring as sin. Yeah. I think that this movie has that, the difference is that it doesn't prolong its shots. Yeah. It's very hurriedly cut. And I don't know if all of that is due to dryer or to what we have in terms of existing elements. There might be longer takes. Than yeah, would be it's very possible. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very interesting to see if that has found its way into the mix. But I want to know from you, did you find anything different about responding to this film years after the fact than when you first saw it? Like, do you think you could like pinpoint a, f- did anything change from that screening to the other one? Um, I mean, like I said, it's been over a decade since I probably saw this movie, but it's, uh, I definitely found it more, like I, this film and Haxon are very in in very similar tiers for me, mm-hmm. uh, where they're very of their era, very artistic uh, interpretations of horror. But also, I was very astonished at how haunting it still was. Mm-hmm. Like it was very, it's very gripping. Unlike uh, like 
there's a lot of horror from this era that's just like, yeah, that's 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 good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one was very like there's a lot of like really great uh just atmospheric-ness to it mm-hmm. that I appreciated more this time around. Yeah. it. I feel like... I think Nosferatu scares me in a different way. Yeah, and, or, I would 100% agree. It unsettles you in a different way because I think the sharpness of the shadows are appropriate for yeah. Orlock. And I think that the... I think that is a more stark and harsh interpretation. Oh. Now, that's a German expressionist film made yeah. by a German, inf- a German director who probably had more influence stuck into it. Yeah. Danish cinema, which I only ha- really have dryer to go off of strictly. Yeah. Seems more in a mood. I feel, I think Nosferatu is a more impressive movie, but this is a scarier movie. Agreed. Like this is mm-hmm. uh, like, yeah. I, I think there's a lot of st- stuff in Nosferatu that I really appreciate more than, than this movie, mm-hmm. but this movie is a lot it's more effective at what it's trying to do. Right. I think. Which which could bring up a question that I think might give us a little bit, something interesting to talk about here, which is there's always a debate about horror films nowadays and whether or not they're actually horror films or they yeah. don't actually hit that mark. I think Ari Aster gets hit with this the most because of uh, Midsommar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, although Hereditary, well, no, Hereditary is far more horror driven. Yeah. But I, I find this in a similar debate because the movie is more because it's more unsettling from an atmospheric sense. It doesn't have an obvious like Marguerite Chopin is not Max Shrek. Yeah. <laughs> because you know yeah, it's, yeah. it's a very different look. And so as a result it more fills you with dread than Orlock does from a modern perspective. But then that's sometimes the difference for some people, even people we know, yeah. who are like, it's not scary because the monster doesn't look scary enough. And I'm like, well, that doesn't necessarily dictate fear. Yeah. But then that same person might also find another movie unsettling, like I say, like The Stepherd Wives or, yeah, yeah. or Hereditary or whatever. Yeah. Do you find that this can fall victim to it and thus requires maybe some context up front before somebody watches it? Or can they watch it pretty blankly? Uh, it depends on how open-minded you are. Like, it's, uh, if you're going into this movie and you've, and you're not that familiar with movies pre-1950, uh, then you're just not going to find this scary. Uh, but if you can look into the elements of what this movie is saying, what this movie, how this movie is framing itself, mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, and you take knowledge of what those elements are trying to do and what those stand for. Yeah. I think it's a very impressive, I think it's still very, if you're in tune to it, like we've like you've said, there's a lot of horror there, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of discomfort. Yeah, uh, and I mean everyone interprets horror differently. I mean some people some people need a saw to be scared. Some people uh, <laughs> a jigsaw. <laughs> yeah, like some people. If, if it's not if you're not cutting your arm off, it's not scary. Uh, but uh, but I think there they is had, a they had some scenes, but they were lost in the fire. <laughs> yeah, uh, but there's definitely like in terms of like classic what a horror metaphysically is mm-hmm. uh this really kind of drives that point home yep i agree now what is the scariest scene for you is the scariest it, ah, um or the most unsettling one of the two i mean the the mule scenes were do there it, mm-hmm. it's, it, the mule scenes are definitely there um but it's almost in a similar way that how he is kind of driven through that siren song through the first half of this movie uh it's very while there might not be a moment uh, that like I point to as like that's the scariest moment of the film or whatever, mm-hmm. there is this deep discomfort 
the entire time yeah. of okay. uh, this uncertainty and this kind of skin crawling kind of feeling. I agree. Throughout. I can agree. I will point to images that we didn't touch on a bunch, mm-hmm. but we can kind of describe them a little bit here. Yeah, yeah. There are moments when he, when Alan is walking through the forest area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, or near the river, mm-hmm. and there are shadows. We talked about the one shadow of the child, which spelled danger for us. Yeah, yeah. But there's another one earlier on. Where it's the shadow up against the river, mm-hmm. and it looks like there's a child across from the river. Yeah, and it reminds me, like from a from a setup standpoint, of a shot in the Friday the Thirteenth remake that never made the final. They, they they never finally did this, but the idea was that a woman is in the lake, and Jason's at the at the bank of the river. Jason's not good again because he's just like it's cold in there. Yeah, but. <laughs> He um, hates the cold. <laughs> no, I don't like the cold. That's why you've never seen a Friday the 13th movie in the snow. Yeah. Um, sorry, Ryan Frost. <laughs> it's not going to happen. I hate the cold. Uh, but the, but she was going to literally like like drown in mm-hmm. there trying to wait for him to go away. Yeah. And so like seeing things from a distance at a riverbank and thinking that there's an impending threat, that kind of idea has been sticking with me lately. And that image definitely hit for me. <clears throat> I will say also... The shadows dancing and the band playing. Now that could be a very uh, quirky, kooky Tim Burton aesthetic in other yeah. hands, but I think that the music played back to it is so genuine and so sincere that it that it relays that terror to me. Going like, where the fuck are they? Yeah, like it's not to say like I'm haunted by musicians I can't see, but yeah, 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 yeah. but there is something about like where is that trombone coming from? Yeah, uh, and I do think that. The the but I think the most unsettling image that has nothing to do with the supernatural stuff we've seen mm-hmm. was Leona's fucking turn to a grin. Yeah. It's like I would love to watch D- Dwight Fry <clears throat> approach that point before they open up the hatch to the bowels of the ship and find him looking up there uh-huh. in Dracula. That's the kind of turn I like looking at. Yeah, it's a testament to silent cinema. And I know that like this um, on this coming Ballyhoo, we have no silent cinema. So that's a yeah. clue for everything else that's coming. Um, but I think we got a close approximation to it because this is more or less a silent film. The dialogue yeah. means nothing. In this yeah. Movie. For, for a non silent movie, it sure f- doesn't go that much further. It's so it's this and silent movie by Mel Brooks. Those are yeah. the two silent films that have sound in it that are just great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and I think that, I think it's going to be easier than not to get people into this film. Uh, like you said, it depends on what mood they're in, and it depends on depends on how open they are. Yeah. But I think that something clever about the way Criterion designed their casing for it, and this is the main place you're going to be able to get this in this country. Yeah. But also, if you look on Criterion Channel and see the imagery of it, it has imagery that hooks you from a marketing standpoint. Definitely. Even if you're not into this kind of atmospheric horror, you might be grasped into watching it for two reasons. Number one, that poster looks cool. And number yeah. two, it's an hour and 13 minutes. Yeah, it's it's a breeze. It's, so. a, it's a breeze too. And you will feel like you kind of stumbled out of a dream. And it, and I think that it helps future horror films embrace. I don't think it's the sole reason this can happen by any means. I think it's a, it's a, it's, it's a uh, conglomeration of a lot of different filmmakers having the same idea at the same time. But the idea of dreams in horror films can be the place where a lot of filmmakers can show where they can stretch. Yeah. Like 
it's the one place where Rob Zombie has been able to stretch himself to places that nobody thought yeah. he could do. And actually, House of a Thousand Corpses also operates off of, is was this all a dream? Yeah. Or uh, by the end of the movie. Not in the same way. Yeah. But, uh, you know, those ideas of, is this a dream, is it reality, blurring the lines. I think Vampire has a lot of influence in that for future horror films. Um, Friday the 13th, literally. <laughs> was Jason in the lake or not? Yeah. You know, or like it it, it it falls into fun territory for horror fans to explore. Definitely. Is, is it directly influencing anything specifically apart from Guillermo del Toro? Maybe not, but I think that the mood and the intent is something that permeated different parts of the culture yeah. and people picking it up. They take ideas, they cherry pick, and that's where you get it. Um, and it's been a wonderful time chatting with you about this film. Like it's, it's a film that like I would normally want to do a deeper plot dive, but we didn't need it because yeah. we're kind of talking about instances and occurrences, but they all weave together. It's yeah. kind of like when Rashmi went on and I talked about a page of madness from Japan. Yeah. Similar thinking here. Very Definitely. similar thinking. Uh and again, it, it is like the 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 collective unconscious mm-hmm. at work here, where it's yeah. like, I don't think Carl Theodore Dreyer was looking at films from Japan. Yeah, yeah. But clearly, everybody was in the same mode and the same thinking. Art influences in Europe at this time very yeah. much permeating the culture. Yeah, uh, and I think that that allowed an abstract film like Vampire to exist. It sucks that it wasn't received well at its time, but it's understandable given the fact that the sound film had really emerged and people really wanted to hear people talk. Yeah, they did not want to watch silent film anymore. It was like, yeah. it was old pash. It didn't. Yeah, make it, yeah. it didn't make any sense anymore. Why do it when we can talk now? Yeah. Why can't Marguerite have a soliloquy? Like yeah. you know, which it would have been great to hear what Marguerite sounds like. And yeah, you know, to make it less scary, I just imagine it's Terry Jones doing a old lady voice for Monty Python. Of course. <laughs> oh, I'm Marguerite. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, but thank you so much, Henry, for sitting down and chatting about Vampire with yeah. us. We should probably have you back for Haxon just to fucking probably shoot at some sh- point. Yeah, we should shoot the shit on that. But I next time though, like I mean, you were nice enough to do this one. Like next time you want to come on, you shoot you you give me whatever you want because right. you bringing international yeah cinema to the show as far back as Sancho the Bailiff has been very inspirational. In fact, you were instrumental in getting us to a place where we have our next topic Ooh. for YBR presents. Ooh, what is it? Well, as you know, we were doing Jacques Tati yeah. again. You were you were a, I was you, there. You were the forefront. Yes, and you <laughs> were there. That's why the French kicked you out. Yeah. And now the Japanese are gonna kick you out too. <gasps> <laughs> because yesterday your Ballyhoo review is going to go into the world of Japanese horror. Ooh. And Rashmi Manan is joining us for every leg of the journey. This Ooh. is this is something that she devised and pitched to me and i wanted to go with it so this is really her baby um all credit to her for creating this idea for us and throwing it out there but we're going to be starting with a couple a couple of them have been pre-recorded so i'll give you some little teases here are you ready for this here first a page of madness we talked about it got it Uh, 1926 we're going to be starting with the earliest form of it and the horror is more of the mind yeah more than anything else again very even more abstract yeah than vampire no dialogue cards, yeah. nothing. Yeah. It was a tough watch. Yeah. Yeah. But it was great also. Like, I love the movie. Yeah. It took me a couple times to really to get, get there. Yeah. To kind of understand the story. You'll hear more about it when we talk about it. But then after that, we're going to go into uh, <clears throat> into some special effects films from Japan, mm-hmm. uh, courtesy of Iji Tsuburaya's 
artistry yeah. because we're going to be talking about the first great science fiction film from Japan, The Invisible Man Appears. Ooh. And it's not so direct sequel years later, The Invisible Man versus The Human Fly. Yeah. <laughs> um, which um, we've may- always wanted to see those two fights. If you've never seen <laughs> if you've never seen it, you need to watch it. Yeah. The Invisible Man Appears is very much just an Invisible Man movie. Has to do with a crime lord. And also there's an invisible motorcycle chase. Very fucking cool. Yeah. Invisible Man versus the Human Fly is on fucking acid. Yeah. <laughs> with it, with its intent. And the way people become a human fly and the visual representation of it. Very innovative yeah. for its era in Japan. But also kind of looks like a fateful findings well, you know, thing yeah. going on. Way better than uh, Neil Breen. Yeah. But... Um, and then after that, we are going to tackle one kaiju film. We only picked one. Only one. We're, and who did we pick? Mothra. Okay. Yes. We are going to be getting a little bit of Shiro Honda into the mix. Yeah. We're going to be talking about that crazy Tanaka and his love of the kaiju films. Yeah. He found one thing he was really good at, and he made it, yeah. he made it fucking work. He is the David O. Selznick of kaiju films yeah uh and uh and then we're gonna be following that up with gokeki the body hunter cool. and the living skeleton and a couple of more films coming along the way we might get a kurosawa movie in there throne of blood maybe question maybe. mark yeah, yeah. it's macbeth so it's yeah. kind of a ghost story yeah a little um and so we might go into that but um coming up on the bally boo this is the first episode of the bally boo this year so ready for the next couple of titles here we go next episode Matt Willicks is returning to the show, and we're going to be talking about The Wolfman. Ooh, spooky. From 1941. Yes, Lon Chaney coming at you. Uh, th- this is this is one of the seminal Universal Monster classics. And the only reason we're not doing a Universal Monster movie bonanza each month is because we want to give room to films like Vampire. Yeah. Um, but the following episode... Gotta be getting ready for this one. It is universal horror, but it's not a monster film. It is James Whale's The Old Dark House. Okay. uh, His follow-up to Frankenstein, featuring Boris Karloff, featuring a pre-Oscar Charles Lawton. Yeah. uh, And a pre-Bride of Frankenstein, Ernest Thessinger, acting very cowardly and wonderful, I might add. Um, And uh, and we're going to be having Sterling Cook on for that, and then it's going to be a blast. And then on the final episode of the Ballyboo, um, uh, we haven't figured that out yet. Um, Yeah. So just stay tuned for that, and you'll just have fun kind of guessing what it's going to be. It's Saw. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, my favorite Golden Age Hollywood film, Saw. Yeah, Saw. (laughs) (laughs) I say, Adam, well, chum, this is quite a predicament we find ourselves in oh jolly ho might as well saw our legs off listen it was a british film yeah it was a british (laughs) film at the time you gotta applaud uh, james wan for uh remaking that film so many years later (laughs) uh so stay tuned for all that but until all of that until next time folks good night and remember if you happen to find yourself passing by an old mill in the daylight slash nighttime uh and if you happen to see a malevolent doctor wandering around and uh, giving you some off-putting vibes and if you happen to see an old lady vampire uh crossing your myths and making you very very unsettled and if you find yourself to happen to be buried and though you can see yourself because you're having an out-of-body experience well Just settle down, sit back, take a breath, and remember, there are such things. Good night.
this concludes tonight's episode of Yesteryear Ballyhoo Review. Remember, you can follow us on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod and now on threads under the same handle. Our theme was composed by Maddie Ghost and our introductions were done by Henry Jarvis. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for Jack Benny, who follows immediately after station identification.